Hey, this is a Hakawati production. Consider this. Isaac Asimov, the world's most famous and prolific author of science fiction, once said, one out of every hundred children who read science fiction will become scientists. My guest today is an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University in Qatar. He recently published a book called Islam, Science Fiction, and Life Outside the Planet, The Culture of Astrobiology in the Islamic World. It sounds kind of obscure, right? Well, not so quick. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Matthias Dederman. Matthias, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nadia, for having me. So let's dive right into this. You're not Arab, obviously, but you've lived in Qatar for quite some time. So you know what it's like in this part of the world. Religion is a big part of people's core beliefs and their everyday life from a practical standpoint. So what would you think would happen in the Muslim world if we found out tomorrow that there are aliens and they've landed on Earth? Very good question. So I think most Muslims would not be entirely surprised uh, that there is extraterrestrial life. After all, the Quran itself speaks about God as Lord of the worlds, Rabb al-Alamin, in the plural. And this phrase, Rabb al-Alamin, Lord of the worlds, is part of daily prayers. Muslims who believe in the Quran also believe that there are intelligent creatures created by God uh, that we share our universe with, uh, and that is not just the angels, uh, but also the jinn. Uh, so uh, the idea that there are intelligent other creatures uh, is not against religion and indeed uh, can be seen as supportive of religion. Uh, I'm thinking here that uh, many Muslims would just see uh, God as obviously all-powerful and thus uh, easily able to create all kinds of peoples and species and civilizations on this and other planets. Mm, that makes sense. Um, but you do explore some of the problems with the scenario in your book, which is about science fiction and the role that it plays in the development of technology and in culture. But let's define science fiction so that we're all on the same page before we dive further into this. It's a genre of speculative fiction that typically deals with imaginative and futuristic concepts such as advanced science and technology, space exploration, time travel, parallel universes, and extraterrestrial life. And sometimes, like in the case of George Orwell's 1984, for example, the fiction part becomes a reality. So the importance of science fiction is beyond just entertainment. Um, but we've heard about many famous American science fiction authors, but is this a part of the culture here in the Middle East? Has it ever been a popular thing? Absolutely. So the Middle East obviously has a tradition of speculative fiction more broadly, especially in the area of fantasy. That goes back 
all the way to mythology and to legends and stories such as the 1001 Nights Alf Leila Waleila. In terms of modern science fiction, the Arab world in particular has a rich tradition that uh, one could see going back to the 19th century uh, and definitely to the 20th century, uh, especially from the 1950s onwards uh, with the beginning of the space age. Many Arabs and Muslims, just like people uh, from other parts of the world and of other religions, have watched with excitement the steps that humanity took outside of Earth into orbit, onto the moon. And uh, from the 1950s onwards, uh, many, many Muslims and Arabs have uh, imagined a future that is shaped by science and technology. And this science fiction is part of a broader futurism, an imagination of possible futures. And this futurism we can see in a variety of art forms. We can see, obviously, in novels and short stories, but we can also see it uh, in films, in the visual arts more broadly, and in architecture. Uh, so I live, uh, I have the good fortune of living in Doha, Qatar, which is only one of at least several cities here in the Middle East that has quite a futuristic landscape and city-states. Uh, you can also think about Dubai, for instance, as uh, the paradigmatic example, perhaps, of a city built to look like a city of the future. I know exactly what you mean, because you're German. You lived in Vienna, I believe. Um, and you describe in your book how when you first came, you were amazed by what you saw. I felt the same way when I landed in Dubai for the first time. It's very impressive. And it does have that kind of futuristic look that you don't find in older cities around the world. Like I'm from Montreal and from Quebec City, which is also pretty old. Um, so much has happened, even though it's only, you know, a couple of hundred years ago that those cities, that my city was built. So much has happened in that time and, and cities that have been built since then have looked so different. But in your book, you mentioned this one uh, Syrian author who wrote a book called Space Farmer. Uh, his name is Ali Nar, I think. I'm not sure if you recall all the details. But what's interesting about that book uh, is how he gives it an Islamic angle. So basically, he sends his protagonist to space um, with other with a group of astronauts who are all Muslims to find a place to plant crops on a different planet. Um, but it has this Muslim angle, of course, because that's his culture and he presumably is a religious person. And he talks about how they wear these watches that tell them uh, the praying times. And, um, you know, of course, they're all of Islamic faith. But so you described how there are elements of science fiction that relate to Islam. You can find parallels. But is it something that has been accepted Um, by religious authorities. Are there any conflicts there? Um, obviously, this story presented things in a very religious way, but if, when that is not there, does it, has it presented, prevented problems and has it been 
uh, suppressed in in the Arab world throughout history at any point? Thank you. Very, very good question. So uh, Ali Nar, uh, this Turkish author, uh, is one representative of a genre or a subgenre that one could call Islamic science fiction, if not Islamist science fiction. And one could see it part of a broader movement uh, to connect Islam with the culture of modern science. This, in part, I think, emerged in reaction to Eurocentric, um, European-centric, if not white supremacist narratives that see science as uniquely Western, uniquely connected to the European Enlightenment, uh, to a rational, secular modernity. Uh, I think many Muslims, uh, uh, in particular, have tried to fight the idea that modernity, that science, that modern technology is just something that is uniquely Western. Uh, but instead, many Muslims have tried to emphasize how much Islam has been part of the story of modern science and also part of the culture uh, of science. Uh, so I think uh, just like it is popular, for instance, to uh, to read modern science into the Quran to show and emphasize the contributions Muslims have made uh, to the history of science. Also, science fiction novels that imagine Islam as part of the future uh, are attractive. Uh, and some of those novels are against a kind of vision that we can see, for instance, in Western productions such as uh, Star Trek, where religion in general and Islam in particular does not appear to be part of the future, right? On the Starship Enterprise, uh, we don't see a visibly Muslim character. We don't see, let's say, a hijabi uh, woman as part of the crew, as if Islam was not part of the future. And I think in reaction to that, novels, short stories uh, that put Islam into the future, that say that Islam can have a place and a role, for instance, in space exploration, are attractive to readers in the Middle East. You're asking me about suppression of perhaps science fiction, of speculative fiction. Obviously, in many Middle Eastern countries, just like in countries of other world regions, there has been a lot of censorship, there has been a lot of uh, suppression of ideas. Uh, however, uh, I think sometimes that censorship, uh, authoritarianism, dictatorship, uh, the constraints on freedom of thought, freedom of expression and so on, have also forced Middle Eastern people to be especially creative and to uh, put, for instance, uh, stories that are critical of existing uh, society, existing politics into the future 
or into uh, other worlds. So I think writers in the Middle East have tried science fiction also to circumvent censorship that uh, has been especially harsh on realist fiction. Yeah. By the way, uh, I mentioned the art, the author was Syrian, but you specified he's Turkish. He wrote a book called Space Farmer. I don't know if you know, but there's a, a movie called The Astronaut Farmer that was uh, produced in 2006 with Billy Bob Thornton about a guy in Texas who builds a rocket ship in his barn so he can go plant crops in space. So uh, the themes that are in science fiction are so universal, obviously, um, because we're all on the same planet and we're looking from different perspectives, but at something that's the same, which is just another place where we can uh, go about, uh, you know, exploring. And I think if anyone does plant crops on another planet in our lifetimes, it'll probably be Elon Musk. But that's just a little bit of an aside that I was thinking about. But about um, when you think about technology today, you think about countries like China, the United States, but we know that some of the earliest technological advances were developed in the Islamic world. For instance, the fountain pen was invented in Egypt in, in the year 953, um, which is which was a big deal back then. They were writing with feathers. We don't think of it as a you know, technological thing, but for them, it was pretty revolutionary. So why do you think that the this part of the world has fallen behind in terms of its technological and scientific innovation. And does it have to do, perhaps, with this um, emphasis on maintaining uh, religion as a, perhaps, as an inward-looking Um, way of life as opposed to allowing it to flourish has it has the has religion changed over time that that it's not no longer part of of what they teach i'm not sure how to ask this question but i think you understand what i'm trying to ask a very very good question uh so i would say that first of all the islamic world in the early and modern period fell back behind, let's say, Western Europe in particular, only in relative terms. So it's not that, uh, let's say, actual learning in the Muslim world uh, and technology actually declined on a large scale. What happened was just that Western European states and empires in particular just developed much faster than, for instance, the Middle East region uh, or South Asia or uh, China. Uh, this has to do with competition uh, between European uh, European states uh, that forced European states uh, to be innovative, perhaps more innovative uh, than sometimes the larger Asian empires of, let's say, the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Safavid Empire, the Mughal Empire, the Chinese Empire. It also has to do with Europe expanding in the Atlantic world in particular, and Europe colonizing the Americas, and Europe extracting um, violently uh, Uh, ultimately, Africans from their continent uh, to work as slave labor in in the Americas. And through this Atlantic expansion that was very violent, that was imperialist, that was colonialist, uh, 
Europeans, Western European states and empires gained resources for scientific and technological innovation uh, that surpassed the resources of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, uh, so uh, I think that is my thoughts, my observations about uh, falling back, about the idea of decline. Personally, I'm not quite sure about religion as such. Uh, like during the early modern period, many Western Europeans were also were also very religious. So figures celebrated as part of the scientific revolution, such as Isaac Newton, for instance, famous uh, for his physical laws, were also deeply religious. One difference, though, was that in the Ottoman Empire, religious authorities and state authorities uh, were able to delay the spread of the printing press. In Europe, the Catholic Church may have perhaps had an interest in preventing the spread of printing technology. They certainly maintained an index, a list of banned books, for instance. But ultimately, in Europe, also because of the religious divisions between Protestantism and Catholicism during the early modern period, Europeans, uh, the Catholic Church was not able to prevent, even if they wanted, uh, the use of the printing press. And the printing press obviously allowed knowledge to be disseminated and shared at much greater speed than the manuscript culture of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so quickly, Europeans were able to produce Many books on a huge variety of topics, including the natural world, were able to establish the first scientific periodicals. Uh, and I think then with those new communication technologies, European knowledge and science just accelerated uh, and became much faster uh, than what we had in Eastern empires. I think what you just said highlights that it's not really about the religion. It's about how whichever uh, government, how they're designing their societies and how they choose to invest their resources and the things they choose to focus on. And, and so, for example, you see in Saudi Arabia, a country that has been you know, going in a certain direction for a while, and now they're kind of uh, pivoting and opening up in many ways while still preserving their culture, but it, they their their religious uh, views do not preclude them from, for example, investing in scientific innovation and education and all of these things. And we know that how important it is for um, a state to invest in those things in order for innovation to happen. For example, in the United States, the refrigerator was invented, uh, backed by government funds. So, I mean, th this allows... Uh, progress to come to fruition, I think. Um, but for example, the Egyptian-American biochemist uh, Rashad Khalifa is one of the people that you talk about in the book. And he basically is a bit of a controversial ca uh, character because he supposedly discovered this mathematical structure in the scripture of the Quran. And some Islamic traditionalists didn't like this. What can you tell us about this person? I'm not an expert on him in particular, uh, but I think he was 
murdered, uh, with a member of Al-Qaeda implicated. And he was considered heretical uh, for his writings. So he was considered as uh, outside of what at least many literalists, many um, extremists, whatever you want to call uh, it, uh, saw as permissible uh, within Islamic scholarship. Uh, So he, as you said, he uh, claimed that he discovered a mathematical structure uh, within the Quran. I think uh, what this particular case is perhaps symptomatic of is just the kinds of struggles over authority that we have in the modern Muslim world. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Catholic Church in early modern Europe, uh, which tried to uh, keep its authority, which struggled to keep control and ultimately lost control uh, over large parts of European Christianity. In Islam, in the Islamic world, uh, the landscape has been much more fragmented to begin with. Uh, There has been not one dominant uh, institution like the Catholic Church in uh, Western Europe. Uh, Instead, you've had various institutions, like, for instance, Azhar University in Egypt. Uh, You've had various centers of learning, including Mecca and Medina, including uh, Damascus, including uh, places in Iran and India, uh, but that have been competing over authority, uh, competing over what is seen as a permissible interpretation of the Quran. And a lot of this contestation, a lot of these struggle, fights, arguments over authorities have been peaceful. Uh, So, for instance, differences between the Sunni religious schools, the Madahib of the Shafi'is, Hanbalis, uh, Malikis and Hanafis uh, have been mostly peaceful. However, there have also been at times very violent repression against new religious movements uh, or against, for instance, Shia movements uh, and so on. So I see uh, this suppression of Rashad Khalifa, yeah, as part of longer and ongoing struggles over Islamic authority, over uh, what you can read into the Quran and how you can interpret Islamic scripture. Yeah, he was he was murdered in 1990, but I think this uh this political aspect of religion uh is what you're talking about. But what I find interesting about what he did is that he tried to derive some kind of scientific um sense out of something that we usually view as purely faith-based, something that people, you know, are expected to believe in God and believe in everything that's written in the scriptures just with faith, without seeing any evidence. And the fact that he tried to um, show in some way that there that this was derived from perhaps more science than we think is, is an interesting way to look at it. Um, you also, the, the, the person that did a lot of the, I'm not sure if he did the cover of your book. This, this is the Syrian artist, Adham Jabir. He does really cool collages, actually, and I'm now, now following him on Instagram. But 
You say that he calls the Quran, or he called the Quran, the first work of science fiction uh, that was ever written, which is interesting. And he points to examples such as uh, there's a, a part where they say that that you can split the moon to ascend the heavens, which is kind of which is kind of a physical thing. Like when it's a physics, uh, you could interpret it as, in some some way as that way. Does he have a point? Uh, so. The Quran, just like other scripture, contains a lot of mythology, contains a lot of legends, contains a lot of miracles, uh, contains a lot of things that are hard to explain except through God's power. Uh, so in the Quran, we have uh, stories, for instance, of the Prophet Muhammad's ascent to heaven, uh, the Isra and uh, Mi'raj, However, we have stories of various miracles that uh, are perhaps similar to what we find in speculative fiction more broadly, including fantasy and uh, and science fiction. The Quran is certainly a text that has inspired many, many Muslims uh, to go in all kinds of directions. Uh, inspired them uh, to learn about science, uh, inspired them uh, to uh, reform their societies, uh, and so on. So if Ayham Jabr, uh, the Syrian artist, sees the Quran as a possible source of inspiration for his science fiction, uh, for his futurism, uh, then I respect that. I think the Quran is an incredibly... Uh, rich text that includes all kinds of lessons and uh, all kinds of stories uh, that, uh, yeah, uh, that can inspire our minds, that can keep us th thinking. And that's why, uh, like, the study of the Quran has hardly been exhausted and exhaustive, right? That's why over centuries you have people going back to the Quran, reading it again and again and again, over and over and over, finding new things uh, in it. So, uh, like, I'm not surprised that science fiction creators, artists, writers, uh, like Ayam Jabbar, also uh, look to the Quran as sources. So, Stephen Hawking, the famous physicist who came up with some of the most advanced theories about space and energy, has this famous quote, one can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. So you could see why this would be threatening to people who have uh, religious convictions. However, on the flip side, science has not answered all the questions. We still have many mysteries that remain unsolved. So perhaps um, the idea of looking to religion to gain wisdom or understanding, or as you said, opening your imagination, is it makes uh, perfect sense. But from your research that you conducted to uh, write this book, What what do you think uh, people get from science fiction? People these days seem to be more interested in reading books, uh, self-help books, books uh, that are biographies of highly successful people. People are looking um, for success, but they're looking also to ascend to another level. What can people get from science fiction? What can people get from science fiction? Well, uh, science fiction is about the imagination and the imagination of worlds that are possible 
especially with science and technology. Science and technology are, of course, elements of our life that we can uh, not ignore, right? Science and technology is everywhere. It shapes our societies. It shapes our planets. Uh, it uh, plays a role in, for instance, a big role in climate change, uh, global warming. So science and technology are just parts of life, central parts of life that have a huge influence on us uh, and on our society. And science fiction allows us to imagine different kinds of arrangement uh, that are possible with science and technology. Uh, so uh, science and technology can be double-edged swords. Uh, they are very powerful and they can be used for good as well as for harm. Uh, science and technology can be used for peaceful purposes, space exploration. It can also be used uh, for war, as uh, in the case of rockets, for instance. Uh, mobile phones can be used as wonderful communication devices, but they can also be used as uh, surveillance uh, uh, devices. And many people who have lived under various forms of oppression, whether in the form of the whether in the Middle East or elsewhere, know increasingly also how science and technology have been implicated in oppression, how states have used uh, knowledge, have used various systems to control public to control populations, uh, to exploit people and natural resources. And I think science fiction imagines that there are other worlds possible, that one can do other things uh, with science and technology uh, than what we have done so far. Science fiction can warn us in that uh, it tells us that society and politics could be much worse, uh, that there are dystopias in which states, governments, uh, societies can be more dictatorial than what we already find in many places. Uh, but science fiction can also offer us utopian possibilities. So science fiction can tell us about better worlds. Science fiction can tell us about other worlds, other planets, uh, in which we can live differently, in which we can live better without oppression, without racism, without patriarchy, without environmental destruction, right? Uh, science fiction can give us solutions. Science fiction can give us hope uh, that uh, there is a world, that there are possibilities that are still modern, but that are more just, perhaps, that are more equal, that are more beneficial uh, than the arrangements and systems with science and technology that we have in the present, here and now. That's such a rich answer. Um, do you think, in fact, that governments in this part of the world should be encouraging and supporting science fiction as one of the tools to help promote innovation and thus economic growth in their countries? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I think uh, 
governments in general uh, should promote science, technology, medicine, and sh should promote understanding of the science and technology, including the beneficial and the harmful aspects, right? Uh, so uh, citizens, uh, residents, uh, people of all kinds, uh, but not just elites, but also common people should know, for instance, the power that science and technology has, what it does to our planet, to our environment, uh, to our society. And uh, societies, people in general, should have a better understanding and a better say of how technology gets used so that it can be used in more just ways, in more efficient ways, in more beneficial ways uh, to more people. So people of all kinds uh, should learn more about uh, science, technology, engineering, uh, uh, mathematics or medicine, uh, the so-called STEM subjects. Science fiction is a way to get people early on interested uh, in, uh, uh, in these kinds of topics. Uh, so science fiction can inspire young people to study physics or to study engineering and to study medicine uh, and mathematics and so on and to go into these subjects and to become knowledgeable and competent. And importantly... Uh, science fiction can also tell us that science is not always good for everybody, that innovation is not always good for everybody, right? Uh, science fiction can also tell us how science, technology, engineering, medicine can be used to make certain people rich and others not, certain people powerful and others not, uh, right? The kind of dystopias uh, that science fiction also paints. Uh, so science fiction could give us warnings, like I said. Uh, so I think through science fiction, through good science fiction that is serious, uh, that um, talks about ethical dilemmas as well, young people could go into these STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, without a naive view that they're just good for everybody, right? They could hopefully go into these fields in order to make them better than what they are now. That's so interesting. And, I, and it's so true that, you know, a lot of children decide what they want to do, what their purpose in life is, uh, at such a young age, based on things that inspire them. But let me ask you these uh, these next couple of questions. I think they're just quick questions. I think people would have these. When a Muslim goes to space on a spaceship, for example, or a rocket, how, how a rocket ship, how does he know which direction to pray? That's a very good question. With our computers, right, uh, a Muslim could easily know uh, which direction Earth is in general, uh, right? And hence also Mecca is. Uh, one could imagine a prayer space that maybe has a rotating qibla, uh, depending on where the spaceship goes. Uh, and, right, I mean, 
we already have airplanes uh, where on the airplane monitors uh, the direction of Mecca is shown. So I don't think that it, for a spaceship it is necessarily that different or more difficult. That's so interesting. But, you know, for us uh, ordinary people, it's like you, you wonder these things. But that makes so much sense to have something that's automatically programmed to rotate according to the right direction. So that, that's cool. Um, what if a Muslim dies in space? How would they dispose of the body? Because you can't bury them in the earth like they usually do. So how would they deal with this? I, I'm not an expert on this particular aspect of Islamic law. Uh, but I have a Like, I assume that Muslims have already thought about what happens if a Muslim dies on a ship, for instance, on a ship that is uh, perhaps uh, days, if not weeks away from uh, the home harbor or home port. Uh, so I wonder whether a similar rule might apply uh, Uh, for a spaceship as to uh, uh, a, sh uh, a ship on the oceans of Earth. Uh, so, so I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Be interesting to find out. Um, there's a Malaysian astrophysicist called Maslan Othman, who was appointed as head of the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, which... I didn't know was a thing, but that's good to know. Um, and she says that, you know, the UN is probably the best organization to handle a situation where um, we would have to communicate with something that's in outer space because it represents the world. But she's Muslim and she talks about how life, she talks about what she thinks life in other planets might look like. And she says it might not even have eyes or arms or legs and that it could have evolved into a pure energy uh, life force, something that doesn't speak any language, but can read brain waves, for instance, which I thought was interesting. Um, such a mind-blowing thing to think about. But how do you imagine alien life? Very good question. I agree with Maslan Othman in that the possibilities are endless, right? Just because uh, The we can have so many different planets, so many different planetary systems, right? We could have planets with much higher gravity uh, than uh, than what we have on Earth. Uh, and if our listeners are interested, they could watch the current Netflix series Alien Worlds, uh, uh, for instance. Uh, so there are endless possibilities, just like life on Earth is incredibly diverse and incredibly rich and will be uh, and has been for a long time. And hopefully, despite the current mass extinctions that we have uh, with climate change and global warming, hopefully will also be very, very diverse uh, uh, in the future. Uh, an ethical question, obviously, that comes uh, with us encountering this alien life is how do we treat this alien life, whether it is more advanced uh, than us, and I put that here in quotation marks, uh, or not. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have a good track record as humans, especially in the modern age, in treating uh, other species here on Earth very well. Unfortunately, we as humans, uh, we have, yeah, exploited 
uh, a lot of other creatures as resources uh, for ourselves. And when we look at dominant discourses of space explorations, unfortunately, these dominant discourses, they remind us and they, uh, of perhaps past injustices here on Earth, right? We speak about colonization. We speak about settlements on other planets, right? We speak about discoveries and so on. And of course, colonization, discovery, settlement, uh, that are also words that have been used, for instance, in the European colonization of the Americas and in the the violence and in the destruction and the exploitation that we have on Earth. So I, my hope is that this incredible diversity that I think we can encounter in terms of extraterrestrial life, I hope that we will respect that diversity more than we have respected the diversity of life here on Earth. Well, good point. I hope so as well. Uh, one last question. If you had to recommend two must-read sci-fi books, which ones would they be? I perhaps restrict myself here to recommendations uh, of works that are available in English, uh, just because I guess this is an English show and we have uh, English-speaking listeners. Uh, so one example would be Utopia by Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq, uh, a novel about near-future near dystopian Egypt. And then I can also recommend two collections, two anthologies uh, that can give readers a variety of the science fiction that uh, is out there. One is one collection is Iraq plus 100, and another one is called Palestine plus 100. And both of those works imagine what the future of these countries respectively could be. Uh, and they showcase stories by different writers uh, with different ima uh, imaginations, different visions of the future. Sounds so interesting. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I love your book, by the way. I'm still reading it, uh, full disclosure. I haven't finished it yet, um, but it's super easy to read and full of amazing information, um, which is not always the case with these kind of academic, uh, you know, uh, materials. I, I'm really enjoying it. So I think it's also a gift for, uh, for, for this region. And uh, we're lucky to have you here. Thank you so much. Uh, that means a lot to me. And I'm fortunate to be able to speak to you. Thank you for your great interest in my work. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Have a good evening too. That's it for today. But I thought we'd end this one with one last quote by Isaac Asimov, whose stories inspired so many great movies and who was already warning us in 1971 that the good earth is dying. It was the title of one of his books. He said, scientists can make great leaps into new realms of knowledge by looking upon the universe with the eyes of artists. See you next time.